All right, I'm going to go over a few, a few additional, you know, using these different tools, that's, that's one weed control strategy. Um, I'm going to go over some other weed control strategies that, that we have or are using. The, the first one is called the stale seed bed. Have you got notes on these? I do. And I'm, I'm hoping I can have them for you oh, okay. by yep. at least after lunch. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so the, the idea on the, on the stale seed bed is it's recognizing that you have this bank of weed seeds in your soil and that whenever you work your soil, um, those weeds are going to want to come up. And so what you do, th this, is, this is particularly the, the place we use this is when we're wanting to direct seed. That's, this, is the, this is where the strategy works best. Um, um, so what, what the idea is, is that, that you, you prepare your bed how you want to prepare it. And then before you seed, you sprout your weeds. So you, you either water the bed or, or maybe you make the bed right before a rain's supposed to come. And so you, you, you let, the, let them be watered and, and you sprout those, those seeds. And then um, you, can, you can either use the, the collinear hoe or something like that to, to just very, very shallowly take out those seeds that have just germinated. We're, we're dealing with them at the white thread stage. Um, or if, you, if you're a little more, um, a little more serious farmer and uh, more advanced, you would, there, there is something called a flame weeder that um, you can you can use to you know it's it's like a it's got enough it's you, you you take a bottle of gas on the it's a machine so there there are some that you just have a, a gas tank on your back and and it's like a torch and you just go like this but then. My, my nephew has, has come up with one that's on wheels that will straddle a 30-inch bed. And then it has, I think, five torches underneath that come down so you can, you can just flame your whole bed all at once with one pass. And, uh, you know, that'll, that'll kill your seeds on the surface. And then after you've done that, you can direct seed in the bed, and your weed pressure will be reduced significantly. It's not going to be eliminated, but it'll be reduced. Um, but, you know, you can just do a shallow cultivation and, and take those seeds out. And sometimes when, when we know that we have a, a really heavy weed pressure in that soil, you might even do it two or three times to before you actually plant your seed. So there's a, there's a timing issue on that because you've got to wait 
about two weeks, you know, somewhere around two weeks between when you've prepared the bed and, and when you can do that cultivation at the white thread stage. But 10 days to two weeks. But um, so if you, you know, you, you might put yourself a month out if you do it several times <laughs> or more. But that, that's a good way of, of taking care of reducing weed pressure on direct seedings. And so I, we, we particularly highly recommend this for carrots. Remember I, I said carrots, are, they, they germinate slower, slower than most other seeds. And um, if you have heavy weed pressure and, and a lot of carrots that you've just seeded, that's a pain. That's all I can say. <laughs> Uh -huh. And he told them that he sowed his carrots in the bed and yeah. then did the flame thrower two days before he expected the carrots to come on the first week. Yes. So he'd already sowed it. So you, you can that he didn't destroy his carrot seeds if they came up early. Yeah. But he assumed the weeds would be up before the carrots and he'd that you can do that will will help you, you know, to, to assure you that, that that you're doing it at exactly the right time. And that is you, you just take a, a small piece of glass and lay it over where some of the carrots have been seeded. And the carrots under that glass will come up sooner than the than the ones that are in the open. And so as soon as you see carrots coming up here, you have to immediately go out and flame weed. And then, and then you can... Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, we'll do that for the carrot bed for the whole bed just to help keep it moist. Yeah. We'll, we'll put a, a floating row cover over it. Yeah. We'll water it and then lay a floating row cover yeah. on it. But um, I, I'm not sure about combining that with, you know, I'm not sure how that would work with the, because that, that'll bring all the weeds up and, yeah. and everything. No, we've only used it in the rainy Right. Okay. Yeah. What about weed matting? You know, product here, weed matting. Weed matting. Yes. We we use that. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell about that and just. Um, okay. So. The next, the next strategy for weeding is, is mulching, um, as we've, we've already talked about mulching a fair bit. One, um, one way of, of mulching that is, you know, if you have three months or so that, that you can have to, to do this, uh, it's, 
we call it the lasagna method for 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 weed mulching or or, or it's not it's not just weed mulching it's for for preparing a garden bed um what you can do is you you take cardboard and and lay it you can just lay it directly on the ground whatever you have you don't have to take out your grass or anything that's growing on the ground you can just lay the cardboard on top of it and then um, then you put a layer of straw or hay or something like that of leaves on top of it probably three or four inches and then and then you you put a layer of compost on top of that and and then you can put another layer of straw or hay on top of that and actually it, it, it'll work really it'll work best if, if you put some compost or you know some compost down before the cardboard so the the cardboard will will keep out the um, it'll it'll kill any weeds that that try to grow and it'll kill whatever vegetation was on the surface of the soil by by preventing it from receiving any light and but then you know it'll kill those things but over time the cardboard will break down and and so that's why I said you, you need time. But if, if you give yourself at least three months, um, you'll be at the place where, where you can plant directly in the top of this bed and you'll have fantastic soil. You, you've just made some top soil there, you know, on top of your ground. You could. You could, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could think of all kinds of different applications for it, but it, that's a, it's a good way to make yourself a good soil if you don't have a good soil. So, but I, th I think I've talked. So, yes. So that takes three months to be ready to plant the weeds? At least, yeah. In the meantime, the weeds? Yes. It shouldn't be much of a problem. You know, as, as long, you know, the, the trick is if you're using hay, hay can, can often have weed seeds in it. And even straw will have. You know, like if it's wheat straw, you'll often have wheat seeds in it. And so that would be the main issue there. If you, if you can get hay from a field that was, that was mown before, you know, in spring, before the, the plants went to seed, that's the ideal. Some can still work very well, especially if they're grown. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You cut them, you soak them up the plane. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, you know, for, for your, you know, we were talking about the, the rooted 
things you know that that have a tap root or a running root this will will help to eliminate them as well just one idea yeah Yeah, yeah, that 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 would probably. Well, you the the thing is, you it won't what you put back on the bed won't be um, weed free. You know the soil that you put back, and and you yeah, might you might have some of that creeping grass even in that. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it would be worth a try. I, I've, you know, I've not done that, so. You don't have the problem in your plantation, We do, <laughs> but our, we have a, a grass that's called a Johnson grass. When it's when it's mature, it'll be tall like this, and it has a fairly large root runner about that size that that will run underground and we've you know it'll be it'll be two or three feet down in the ground running and and then coming up of course but it's at all the different levels from the surface all the way down running and so for for us if we just scrape if we scraped off the top foot chances are really good that we would have some johnson grass in that if we put it back on you know, we would be saving ourselves from the deep ones, but, you know, not the surface ones. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's the lasagna method of bed making, we call it. But it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a mulching method. Um, another... You know, we've talked about wood chips and, and straw or hay and leaves. Another, another kind of mulch that is used a lot is plastic. Um, that's, you know, farmers on a, on a large scale particularly use that for, I mean, the, the, the thing we use it the most for is strawberries. And we, um, John, started farming before I did. Is our time up? Okay. All right. So do you want to take a break or, or just continue for another hour? Okay. All right. So, um, for we use the the mulch for strawberries. We you know we have a a mulch layer on the tractor, and we have an implement that makes a bed and then lays the mulch. But I, we have done it by hand. You can just buy the a plastic roll and, and lay it out, and just use a, a spade or a shovel to heap some dirt on the edges. You you generally will want to go down once, heap the dirt on one side so you can pull it tight on the other side to keep the dirt rather than working your way or you can you can work your way down the bed but you need to do, keep going back and forth if you do that. I don't understand is the 
we we make a, a raised bed like this, yeah. and then and then we lay the um, we lay the plastic over it and and down like this. And what what, what we generally do is actually dig out here and, and throw this dirt on top. So the mulch layer behind the tractor does that. It, it, it scoops that dirt out with a, with a disc, and then, then there's a following disc that throws it back on. Yeah, so we, we put the dirt on top here. So, um, this, when, when, we, when, when my brother John started growing strawberries, he, he really disliked the idea of using plastic. Now that's the standard for all strawberry, commercial strawberry growing in the US. But they say that there's enough plastic used just growing strawberries that you could wrap the earth several times. <laughs> and you know, it's just, plastic is a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad environmental, you know, how do we get rid of it when we're done with it? And you can basically only use the plastic one year. And, and you have to redo it. So. Vertically. Yeah. Oh really? <laughs> okay. Okay. I I did see that sign. Yeah. Okay. So, anyways. John said, I'm, I'm just going to do straw. And so he did a straw mulch. And that basically, that didn't help him very much on the weeds at all. And like I said, you know, it's hard to, you, you almost have to come behind and, and pull all the weeds by hand rather than using a tool. So it, it wasn't successful. So then he, he said, okay, I'm going to use the weed matting you know, because it's a woven mesh and it's breathable and reusable. And so, so he, he prepared um, a lot of this um, weed matting. Um, our, the, the, the beds of the strawberry field were about 250 feet long and he, he burned holes in, in it for where the strawberries would be so that we could, you could put that on and then transplant into them. And he did that for several years and, and was doing that when I, when I joined him on the farm. But after doing it for several years, he began to get the sense that maybe the weed matting was harboring disease. Um, and so, we said, okay, let's, so the next year we said, let's do one bed with the, with the plastic mulch and, and we'll do the rest of the field with the weed matting. And that bed with the plastic mulch, the, it just stood out from the rest of the field. The plants were bigger and better. And, you know, why were they bigger and better just with a difference in mulch? You know, that, that's... Yeah, nobody really knows exactly. <laughs> yeah, 
possibly. They, I mean, they're both black, so they, they would both generate heat in that way. But the, you know, maybe the, the matting is, because it's breathable, maybe it doesn't quite as much. But one, one hypothesis that um, some people have put out is that, you know, your, um, the, as we said, the soil is full of life, and that life is, is living and breathing, right? And so it's, all that life is, is generating carbon dioxide. You know, it's breathing oxygen and generating carbon dioxide just like we do. And, of course, that's what plants breathe, right? And so one, one hypothesis has been maybe that, um, you know, these, these holes, maybe all the, the carbon dioxide is coming up and out here, out the hole, and so the, the plant is getting a concentrated source of carbon dioxide. <laughs> I don't know. How, how was he doing drip irrigation? Yeah, using, yeah, the, there's a drip line that goes underneath that plastic. You lay that first, underneath the plastic, yeah. Yeah, you lay that first, so. Yeah, I mean, there, it is true that it's, it's not just strawberries that people have noticed. They, plants seem to do better with a plastic mulch than without. So, anyways, after that, one year, we said, well, you know, we have our ideals, but we're trying to make a living, and we better just go with the plastic, even though we don't like it, because it, it just works better. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What What's the problem with uh, reusing the plastic? Is it just the logistics of taking it off the ground and using the plastic? Yeah. This ours is not. Now they they have come out with some biodegradable ones. Some the mulches like this. So that that is an option. They're they're more expensive and. I'm not sure if we have used them that, you know, as of a year or two ago, they were not, the biodegradable ones were not accepted by the U.S. organic standards, which, you know, I, I would think that that, <laughs> but I think they were concerned, yeah, they were concerned about some material in them, even though it's, I think it's corn-based mostly, the, but for some reason, they, they wouldn't accept it. And, and we were certified organic. We, just last year, we, we dropped our organic certification, so we could potentially use that now. So, although we're not trying to, we don't want to, you know, we didn't drop it because we want to change our growing practices. We just dropped it because it's a hassle to keep it up. And, and our customer base is, for the most part, buying directly from us. The, having organic certification is useful primarily when you're wholesaling. Yeah, because people don't know who the farmer is. If they know who the farmer is and they trust you, I mean, we're, that's what we're trying to do is build that trust. So it, it, we didn't really need the certification. Are you using white or black plastic? Um, for, for the strawberries, we're using black, but we, we have done tomatoes 
and we'll we'll use the white on them because they're you know it's hot and we don't want to increase the heat in our soil. So that's that's plastic mulch. It you know as much as we don't like it, it does have a place. Um, Oh, so the, then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the weed matting. That, that is something that we have just started using on a larger scale. And um, not, not with our, you know, we stopped using it with the strawberries, but we've started using it in the rest of our garden. And there are a couple ways you can do it. So you have a garden like this. These are your beds, and, and then these are the aisles. And um, outside, I said we have 18 inches there and 30 inches here. Um, so what's how, how many feet is that total? That's four feet, yeah. So that's four feet from here to here, right? So one, th one thing we have done is the, the, the weed matting comes in different widths. You can buy it in three-foot width, four-foot width, and I don't know what else. But there, there are different widths that it comes in. So we bought, we bought four-foot weed matting. And for, for crops that we plant a single row down the bed, so these would be things like melons and sweet potatoes, um, crops like that. We, we'd have a, a single row down the bed. And, and we, what we did is we, we got a four foot weed matting and, and we, we placed one edge here, dropped it down, and brought it up like that. Okay? And, and that worked nice. And you can follow the backing tie when you, when you house and you switch the tightness. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not, how, do you, how do you hold your weed matting down on the ground? You know? We we stakes. Yeah. Okay. You can do that, and we have a what we call a ground staple. So it's 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 about that wide at the top. I mean, it's about this size. And it, it's maybe five or eight inches long. Metal. Yeah, it's metal. It's an iron staple. And, and so we, we use that to, to hold the edges down. So I put one every, probably at least every two feet. Close to the two or three feet. Or where you put the yeah. yeah, of course, 
I, you don't want to do it right where the plant is. It, you'd want to put them in between the plants. But yeah, but it is, yeah, it does go down here. We didn't, we didn't put it down here. We just let the, the fabric go down, yeah. Our beds are, you know, we don't, we don't intentionally, well, sometimes we do make an, intentionally make raised beds, but for the most part, we're doing them flat on the ground. But just the fact of loosening the soil makes them come up a little bit. This is a, a little exaggerated. Do you do it with a right feet high? A right feet high to um, bring the soil up? Because usually after you've been through with a right feet high, yeah. It brings the soil up a bit. Is, is a rotary hoe what, you, what we call a rototiller? Yeah. Okay. We, we do do that occasionally, but we, we try to minimize the use of, of the rotary hoe. Yeah. Um, Powerizes the soil. It, yeah, it, it'll pulverize the soil. And it makes a, a hard pan underneath. Right. So the, the, the application where we feel good about using the rotary hoe is if, we have, if we've had a, a green manure cover crop and we're wanting to work it into the soil. Because the other, the other thing that, that the rotary hoe will do, besides pulverizing the soil, it, it stirs everything up, and so it speeds up the combustion of your organic matter. So especially if you're in a hot place, um, your, organic, you know, your organic matter is just burning up quickly because you're in a hot place anyways. But when you run over it with a rotary hoe, it just speeds it up even more. It's like stirring up your you know, the embers of a fire. And so we, we don't want to burn up our organic. We, our place is hot in the summer and we're, we're just fighting to keep organic matter in the soil. And so we don't want to burn it up. But if, we're, if the reason we're using the rotary hoe is to put organic matter in the soil, then we feel that's justified. So what would, at the most, we would, we would do a better field, not more than once a year with that. So the, the main thing we use to, to loosen the soil is, is a, a spading fork and or the, the broad hoe, the broad fork that we have sitting out here. So we'll, we'll, we'll loosen the soil with a spading fork if, if the soil hasn't been worked. And then, and then ever after, that, that's just the first time, and then ever after, you can do it with a broad fork. Um, that's a lot easier on the soil. Did, did you have a question? Okay. Yeah. Yes. How do you have the soil for um, sweet potatoes? Because like in New Zealand, they make it up into a, a round bed like that. Yeah. Um, let, let, I just want to make one more comment comment on the the other thing is that the the rotary hoe well only does a shallow cultivation and and with the the broad fork and the, and the spading fork we can get quite deep we, we can get you know almost a foot down in the ground so that those are reasons we like to use them more um, 
So for, for sweet potatoes, you're, you're saying they, they, they make a, a, a mound and then plant them in it? Yeah. Yeah. And then they cut the leaves off the runners. runners, so it produces more. Oh, really? Mate, if, if you get too much runny, you, you don't get as big a fruit, yeah. bigger, bigger tuber, you know? No, I didn't know that. So I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah. It's like pruning. Right. Okay. And I eat the tips. Yeah, I, I do know about eating the, the sweet potato tips. Well, I just yeah. wondered how much gets given out in one of those beds for a sweet potato. Well, we will. We'll we'll do you know do it with a broad fork so it's deep, and. I guess for that reason, I haven't felt that it's so important to make a pile because we've yeah. made the soil loose deep. So how big would that be? Well, it would be about at least, yeah, eight inches to a foot. Yeah. I think on golf courses and one thing in the other in Australia, I've probably got in America too, where they aerate the golf course. Uh huh. And they, they come along, I don't know whether they use uh, air, air compressed air. Yeah. They go down. You know, with the machine, uh -huh. and it aerates the whole okay. area very quickly. Yeah. Well, if you could afford one of those, maybe you could yeah, well, do that. You do it <laughs> right. Yeah. We use a. Yesterday, we showed a the a film on on, on bed preparation, and and it showed a a spading um, uh, a rotary spading machine that goes behind the tractor. We, we like to use that rather than the, the rotary hoe. And it has, um, it has a, a spindle with, with a number of um, spades attached to it. So they, the, the, the spades will be coming down like this. And and they're they're on how do I if I if I look at the shaft like this, there's things coming out and then the spade is coming off of that. So so as as the shaft turns the spades raise and lower. And um, so they, they go down and then they come up and then they go down again like this. And... Like a cane shop. Yes, yeah. So that is, that is easier on the soil than, than the rotary hoe. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty slow. And it, because you, you have to, you have to, the tractor is, when, when, when John first got it, he had to modify the tractor with creeper gears. Now we have some hydrostatic transmissions that just slowly, you know, that just change as you go. So you can you can set it whatever speed you want. But you're you're just creeping along very slowly, about this speed. And but it's it's digging the soil and it's it's turning the soil, but it's not pulverizing it. That's the that's the good thing about it. It's not pulverizing. Um, 
the other the other way that you can use this weed matting is my my nephew John's son. He he's he has a business selling selling farm implements for small scale farmers, and so he started um, dealing in the, in the weed matting. And he you you tell him what spacing you want holes on on your fabric, and he'll put them he'll put holes in it. And then, and then you, you put the fabric on like this, and, and it has holes in it wherever you, you know, wherever you wanted them. So there, there's the two options. This option here works best if you're just having a single planting on there. Now, one thing I, I have thought of and I tried a little bit is the idea of, you know, on, on my beds that have a, that are four feet on center, uh, tried using a three foot um, weed matting with, with like two rows of kale so that the kale was, was coming up here right, right next to it. And then the, the weed matting was going down like that. So there was just the space between the kale and that space once the kale has started to shade out the weeds, that space isn't going to have very many weeds growing. So you just have to cultivate that space once, probably. And, um, and then you, but you don't have to worry about the rest, you know, the aisles or the, the sides of the bed. So that's another option to, to, to think about in using the weed matting. And the nice thing about the weed matting is that it is reusable. Um, then the, the final strategy that that just in the last two or three years we we've started using quite a lot on our farm is using a um, silage tarps these are it's a, a fairly heavy plastic that's white on one side and black on the other side and they because it's a fairly heavy plastic you can reuse it for several years and um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll lay it on the ground to, well, it, it, it'll work somewhat like that lasagna method, you know, we, where we talked about putting the cardboard down. The, the weeds will, will try to come up and grow under it, and they'll die because they don't have light. So the, the thing is, if you... You can, there, there are two different applications for it. One is if you've got a lot of weeds in an area that you want to kill, um, you can cover them with a tarp and, and come back in three weeks or a month and they'll be dead. Then you, you'll have to take them off and prepare your ground. An, another, another application for using it is, is to to prepare your bed and you know get it ready for planting and then cover it with that tarp and um, let the weeds sprout. You'll want to water it first. So you prepare your bed, you water it, cover it. The weeds will, will be all happy because they got watered and they'll germinate and then there's no light and they'll die. So if you give your, you can, it's, so it's similar to the stale seedbed method. 
and um, you, you probably need to give yourself about three weeks to, to make sure that you've accomplished that. I, I've tried it and you know, not all weeds germinate at the same time, so there are some fast ones. And at two weeks, I'd taken care of the fast ones, but there were other ones you know, that were still coming up. So. And I, I, try, you know, I, I told you we have this Johnson grass that, that has runners deep in the ground. And what, what I, ha I had a, a large field, well, it was about a third of an acre. It's not real large, but I, I covered about two thirds of that in, in the tarps. And, and I started my garden in the, in the third that I hadn't covered. And the idea was that then I, I would keep working my way up, you know, with, with new plantings and, and take the tarp off as I went and I'd have a weed-free area to take up. So by the time I got, uh, you know, towards the, the top of the garden, um, I think it was, it, it was about two or three months. Um, by that time, the Johnson grass had been killed under it. You know, it, it was trying to grow. It even poked up, you know, pushed up the plastic trying to grow. <laughs> but um, it eventually... Has there been any uh, studies in that done on, on how much heat you really need in the ground to kill weeds? You know, you're talking about, you know, using flamethrowers or whatever. Yes. You know, does that kill all of the seed of the, uh, the, the ungerminated... The, the, the flame weeder, um, you would have to do it very, very slowly. And the, the way it's, it's generally used, you're not killing any weed seeds. As long as you're not getting rid of all the microbial Right. Well, if, if, you, if, you're, if you kill weed seeds, you're also going to be killing your, yeah. your microbial life. What you've got to look at is the balance. Exactly. You know, what's... <laughs> right. You know, you can... If you... If you if you do kill those things by heat, and I'll tell you a method of doing that, if you do kill them that way, you know you can re-inoculate your soil by adding compost and 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 um, we were talking about bokashi, the you know the compost tea or things like that. You can re-inoculate your soil with them, but you, yeah, you'd have to you think about that. Through your drip lines, this Um, you. If if it's a if it's clear, you could do that. I we we have not done a lot of fertigation. Yeah, we've mostly just used. We we do have the ability to do that, but we just haven't done it very much. Yeah. Um, so, but what what I want to say is, with these tarps, you're you're not killing the weeds because of heat. It's, it's the light, or the absence of light, that's, that's doing the killing. But there, there, is, a, there is a method of, of killing, um, killing not only the weeds, but also the, the life in your soil called solarization. And, and there, there are times where you might want to do that. And I'm thinking particularly if you have a, a persistent soil-borne disease in your in your soil, yeah, yeah. But I, I I'm thinking more of a fungal disease, yeah. 
that that's soil born. Um, is sulfur allowed to be used organically? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Integrate cleansers and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. So um, this this solarization method. By the way, um, most uh, most harmful organisms in your soil will be killed at about 130, 35 degrees. I, I was sharing that yesterday. That's Fahrenheit and I just got a calculator here that okay, so that's that's fifty seven degrees centigrade. so the the most harmful organisms will be killed at that temperature. most um, but but the the beneficial organisms are not killed until you get up to about 71. So you have that, that window there. If you can heat your soil to that level, you, you would take out your, your harmful organisms and, and keep your beneficials. So we, yesterday we were talking about that in the context of compost. If you, if you bring your compost pile up to that heat, um, you'll do that. So. It's it's a little harder, you know. You can you can control your compost pile a little easier to keep it in that temperature range, and I think you need to keep it there for about 15 days to to actually accomplish that. But um, it's easier to manage your a compost pile for those temperatures than it is your soil. Um, I. So this, this method of solarization. You, you take a, a large area. I mean, we've, we've done it in, in hoop houses, doing it for the whole hoop house at once. Um, you, you just cover your, your soil with a, a clear plastic. So this other, this other method was, well, I guess it could be any kind of plastic, but um, a clear plastic is often easy. If, if you've got hoop houses, you know, that you have to change the plastic every few years and you've got, if you don't throw it all out, you've got some scraps that you could use for this. <laughs> so um, you have to, you know, you can either throw some soil on, on this. You have to have it airtight underneath there. And um, it would be really good if you could run some, some drip lines underneath it. Um, if you can't do that, you want to saturate this ground with water. Just make it really, really wet. But if you can run drip lines under, then you can water it while you're while you're doing this process. And um, 
You know, I, th I, th I think actually your plastic does need to be clear as I'm thinking about this because what you're doing is you're letting the sun come through that plastic and heat your soil. And I was, I was attending a conference where they were describing this and I think, I'm trying to remember the depth they gave, but I, I think it got up to I think it was getting up it to, to around 150 in the first inch, or maybe that was the top half inch. So, you know, again, that's one, 130 Fahrenheit is, is what you need to kill most harmful organisms and the beneficials can survive more than that. But I think it was down to about an, an inch and a half or, or two inches, it was, it was still 130 degrees. So it, they, they, they were using it to kill a, a fungal disease in the soil. And, and they felt that it, was, that it was successful in doing that. I think you need to leave it for about a month. So the, the secret is you need to, the soil needs to be moist because that, that will help carry the heat. You know, I, I mean, it needs to be wet, not, not just moist, wet, because that helps to carry the heat down in the soil. Um, but it, you know, they, they said it, it didn't only kill the fungi, it, it killed the, the weed seeds near the, the surface of the soil as well. So we, we have we have tried this a, a few times, not not a lot on our farm. Yes. I am. In fact I'm I'm just gonna Start on that. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So I want to talk about pests and diseases. And before I get directly into that, I want to um, want to give a little background ideas and, and thoughts. What what I'm dealing with here is is two different paradigms, two different ways of, of looking at your garden, and. Um, as I, as I recognize these two ways, I recognize that, that they apply to not just your garden, but pretty much the whole of life, I think. Um, I, I know they, they, they definitely are true in the, in the medical field, and I think they, they apply in lots of other areas as well. So 
but I'm, I'm going to present the, the agriculture model and then maybe you can see how, how it applies other, else, elsewhere. So in, in paradigm number one, um, you have an insect pest or a disease and that's the problem, right? Um, it's the cause, it's damaging your plants, it's, it's reducing your expected harvest. Um, it's gotta be dealt with. And so how do we deal with it? Um, we've got we've to kill it, right? <clears throat> Let's get rid of it. And so, and so we, we search for something that's going to kill that pest or that disease. Um, you know, I'm speaking of diseases are usually living organisms also. We're, we're wanting to kill them. So um, our focus in this paradigm is how are we going to get rid of, how are we going to eliminate this pest or disease? In, in paradigm two, we, we look at things differently. We see, we see a pest or a disease in our garden and we say, hmm, that, that's an indicator that, that my plant is getting stressed and I, I need to figure out what can I do to, to eliminate that stress from my plant. Um, and, so, and so my focus is on, on the health and well-being of the plant. Okay? So I, and I'm trying to find out what's, what's causing stress. Um, just it's kind of an interesting note that most of the time, not all the time, but, but the majority of the time, the, the problem is going to be below the surface of the ground at the root level. Okay? There's, there's, there's usually, I mean, the, the, the simple one might be water stress, too much water or too little water. Um, but then there's, you know, there's nutritional issues and, and other, other things that, that can stress the plant at the level below the roots. I mean, it, the whole plant is stressed, but the, the problem is, is a root issue in the ground. Um, so, but, you know, it can be too much sun or too much heat or, you know, other, other things besides a, a soil issue. Um, so my, my focus in this paradigm is, like I said, how do I improve the well-being of my plant? Do you, do you see any application of these two paradigms on, on other levels? Yeah. It's the same with sinning you like you. You need a cherry to get well. Okay, good, very good. And it's the old adage, prevention is yeah. better, better than cure, which is something we understand in health. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one thing that, that really opened my eyes regarding organic agriculture was um, before I started farming, I was, John had started farming 
and we were visiting. We weren't living there. We, we came to visit. And he said, you know, there's, there's going to be a, um, a farm show day. You know, the, the state agriculture department is doing a farm show. And he said, they're, they're, going, to be, um, they're going to have a little bit on, on organic. Um, they were going to be talking about berry production, strawberries and, and other berries and, and a lot of other things. But he said they're going to have a little organic in there. So I think this was just the beginning, you know, where they're just starting to condescend and do a little organics, you know, not much. So I said, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to go. So we went. And, you know, I don't know how, how those farm days are here, but there they, they loaded us into a, a wagon behind a tractor, and, and then they took us to visit different demonstrations you know, a, a number of different demonstrations, different crops, um, you know, melons, squash, you know, a lot of different things. And I was just, I was really, really impressed. You know, we, we went to, to each demonstration and they said, okay, here's the crop. These are issues that that we face, you know, diseases or other things that we face with the pests that we face with this crop. And here's the product that you can use for it. We go to the next one. Here's the crop. That's how we grow it. These are the diseases and issues we face. And here's the product that can go with it. And, and there's actually a rep there, <laughs> you know. And so the, the whole tour was like that, you know, one after the other. I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, it's... So, you know, my, my dad is a medical doctor, and the medical field's exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that, that just opened my eyes so wide. I, so, um, so yeah, I, think, I think you can guess, we, we like Paradigm 2. You know, that's, <laughs> that's where we want to work. And so our... We, we don't like to focus on pests. We don't like to focus on diseases. Our, our focus is on how do we have healthy plants? What, what can we do to provide the environment that is going to make those plants flourish? Um, this is, you know, how can I be life-giving? That's our goal. How can I be life-giving? Um, now, I, I do want to be clear that, that the divide between these two paradigms is not the equivalent of the divide between conventional and organic agriculture. Because there are, are a lot of organic farmers, particularly conventional, I mean, large-scale organic farmers, commercial organic farmers, who are, who are using organic products in a paradigm number one method. You, you see that? So you, you can operate in paradigm one organically. 
Same, same in natural health vitamins, yes. supplements. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I think it's really important to have that clear in your mind. Just because you're organic doesn't equate that you are operating in paradigm two. Um, and, I, and, and I think I should clarify when, when we're we, we should talk about the organic substances that are used in paradigm one and even in paradigm two you know we'll, we'll yeah so what's the difference between those substances and and the conventional ones you know why why would organic be better in that case um, the, the primary difference is that organic poisons are naturally derived. They're not manufactured in a lab. They, they might be extracted in a lab or processed in a lab, but they, are, they, they come from, from a natural product. Um, and because of that, they generally degrade rapidly. So when, when a conventional farmer sprays his crop with a fungicide or a, or a pesticide, generally he would like that to remain you know, effective on the plant for a bit of time. When, when you use an organic product that way, that product is good for maybe a day or, or two. But almost certainly when it rains, it's done you know, you're, it's not effective anymore. So they, there's a much shorter, tighter window of time that organic products are effective. I think a lot of these so, uh, conventional chemicals now too, with the perimeters they've got, they will, a withholding period that is very yes. short, uh -huh. because they don't want to get it all on the market quick. Right. They don't, they don't want things to be hanging around in the soil. So they break down the sun. So they are getting better. You know, yeah, I, I think they, yeah, they, they're recognizing these issues. And so yeah. they're. You've got to forget all those when you, you know, if you're in the soil for another 50 You know, so we prefer paradigm two, but at the same time, you know, we've got to be practical. And, you know, my plants got stressed, but that's my crop right now. You know, a lot of times if, if my plants are stressed and, and I get um, pests on them, I mean, there, there's not really any way to rectify that situation until I grow my new crop. You know, if I figure out what, what was causing the stress, you can't, a lot of times, you can't rectify the, the, the mistake or, you know, what was, what was there. You, you've got that crop now, and, and that you've got to handle that. And so um, I'm, I'm going to talk about a number of... Um, of organic ways that we, we try to manage 
pests and, and reduce pest pressure and and even you know some some poisons that we use now we on our farm we are very very reluctant to to even spray organic pesticides you know one of the one of the strongest organic pest, pesticides is is pyrethrum and we very you know it's it's once every number of years that we'll use that um, we we very rarely use it because um, the the thing is in in nature you have well you you just don't see pests and disease running amok in the bush out here with one exception and and the exception is something that's that's been introduced okay but in the in the natural setting with, without that exception they're not running amok why is that yeah there, Yes, that's right. So for, for every, every insect pest, there are predators that prey on it. And, and the disease is the same, the same thing. And so that's why, you know, they are there in the bush. There are the pests and there are the predators on them. And that's how nature works. So it, it doesn't get out of balance. Where it gets out of balance is when, when a pest is, is introduced that has no predators, or a disease is introduced that has you know, nothing to keep it in check. That's, that's when it gets out of balance. So um, on our farm, our goal is to not necessarily eliminate pests and disease, our goal is to keep it in check. And, you know, if we, if we use something like pyrethrum, for example, it's going to kill everything. It's going to kill my, my pests, and it's going to kill the predators that prey on that pest. And so that's why we, we really do not like to use something like that, even if it's organic. I think the biggest enemy we've got with anything today is Mrs. Housewife, sorry. But like when she bites, she goes with her eyes, and she sees a little mark on the fruit, or yeah. a rough mark, yeah. or whatever. And I, I heard a program the other day, other people might have heard it, and they were talking about parameters that um, Woolworths, for instance, you know, who has a supermarket yes. here in Australia, has just for their bananas. And it, it, it covers something like 300 pages wow. of how they want their, you know, yeah. and all the banana growers can get to that stage where he can supply them. He's got to be using almost every chemical in the world. You know? Yeah. And, and you just become a chemical farm. Yeah. You know? and, and it's because of that lady going in and wanting a perfect apple or a perfect banana and whatever. A little bit of grub mark or something on it, and it would save this country. Yes. A hu
there is a, a certain amount of, it, it, in, in the U.S. at least, there, there's a certain amount of um, awareness counter that. And, and, and so people who are, who are wanting um, chemical-free produce are recognizing that, you know, if, if there's some imperfections on it, that's, that's almost like a, a badge or a signature that this is, you know, we, we have more assurance that this really is organic. It's not, <laughs> you know, but, but it, but it, okay. But it, but it takes, it takes an awareness raising and an education effort to, to help people see that. <laughs> yeah, but that, that is a big drive. I mean, that's probably the, the, the biggest driving force in, in using chemicals is to have a flawless appearing piece of fruit or, or produce. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I want to tell you about um, just as, as an illustration of this concept. Elliot Coleman, um, he's an he's a organic garden writer. He's written several books that we really appreciate. Um, he tells a story of, of visiting in Europe. He, he'd like to go to Europe because the Europeans are tend to be a little more advanced in, in small farm techniques and technologies than we are in the States. And so he, he was visiting um, in France, and he came to a, a, a town where there was this man who had a, trying to remember how, I think it was almost a couple acres under, under glass. It was a, a very, very large um, greenhouse. And what was really neat is that he had, a, he had a store. He had a storefront where he was selling his produce and things that he grew. And you could walk out the back of his storefront into his um, greenhouse. And so there was a direct connection there. And um, Elliot Coleman said that he went into that greenhouse and he was just astounded. He said he had never seen such a, a diversity of things growing together in one place. So, you know, he had, he had um, peaches and apples and limes, you know, all growing together. Underneath, he had strawberries and, and, you know, every kind of vegetable you can think of. You know, both the cool season and the warm season all, all growing together at one time. And he, he, he was just astounded at the diversity, you know, and, and it's all very intensely cultivated and grown. And, but what really blew him away was he, this man, um, in the center of his greenhouse, this man had an area where he was he was breeding um, pests. You know the the insects that would he was actually breeding them inside his greenhouse. And and, and Elliot was saying, "What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing this?" And and you know because. In, in America, and I'm sure it's here too, in, 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 a, in a real commercial greenhouse, you have to go through a sanitary process to go into it. And he, he was saying, this guy was just 
fearless. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what he said is, yeah, I'm, I'm growing these because I'm, I'm also growing the predators that prey on them. And they have, the, the predators have to have a food supply. Otherwise, they won't remain here. You know, they'll disappear. And so he, he, was, he was keeping this balance going inside an enclosed environment like that. He somehow worked it out. And yeah, so that's, that's just a whole different way of thinking for most agriculturalists. The biggest problem we've got is that, that you know, we've got concentrations of huge populations today. You know, you know, I come from a background where we've had to reduce quantities. Yes. Like if you take eight boxes of tomatoes into an agent, you say, what are you doing with giving me eight boxes? That's a pallet space. I right. A, I want a pallet five. You know, right. Right. 144 on the pallet space. Don't right. give me that. And it's really sad, this is how small growers get pushed aside. It might be a better product, but they want the bigger grower. Yes. You know, that they can sell by the pallet. Yeah. You know. And, yeah. Uh, you know, with our huge cities and one thing and the other, uh, it's very, very difficult, becoming more and more difficult. You know, to supply the need for a bulk amount of food, you know. Yes. And, and at, there, as you're talking about the two paradigms, you know. Yes. And it, it, it's, it's a hard one. It is. You know, it is. really supply those people with, with food. If we were all growing organically and we all had our own little garden, we lived in a perfect Garden of Eden situation and we won't. Yes. But it's not happening. Yeah. And it's continuing to happen. You know, the bigger cities are getting bigger. And right. There's no decentralization. Yeah. You know? The, you know, the, I guess the way, the way we're approaching that is that we feel that, well, for one thing, the only way we see that we can make it financially is to, is to sell direct to the consumer because we can, we can sell for a much higher price. And we have found that we have, to, we have to sell for a premium price to really make it worthwhile for us. Okay. So, you know, we go into our high-end, I don't know if you've heard of Whole Foods, but we, we go in and see what they're selling for and we match that price or make it a little higher. <laughs> you know, and that, I, you know, I'm always wanting to give people a good deal, but I can't survive if I don't do that. And so we are, we are selling to a population who has been educated and who really, um, who really highly values our product. Mm. And, so and they, like in this country here, we're selling milk for a dollar a liter. Yeah. You know, it, it's ridiculous. It's like kicking a farmer in the face. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, and when you see your product being sold below its value, it's growing value. Yeah. Yeah. No, it has it has changed completely the, the way I think when I when I when I shop. When I when I see some produce for a a really cheap price, the first Someone thought in my it. mind is Someone is somebody, some poor farmer got a raw deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. At the expense of the big multinationals. Exactly. They put on their specials. We were just saying here before, Aldi, believe it or not, I've, I've 
the worst attendance in this because we're trying to get a share of our Australian market here. Yeah. And I know because I used to be a wholesaler mm -hmm. and, and buy out of the market. I knew exactly what they're paying for a product. Right. And I've seen grapes, cherries, whatever you look at. And so how are they doing it? Yeah. That it's cheaper than what I pay for it in the market. Yeah. In the, in the big markets, you know, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, mm -hmm. wherever. And they did use it as a loss for them, you see. So yeah. they, they just sell it out for whatever price. Just to help bring people head. into the store. Yeah, yeah, so that they can pull their people in. Yeah. But what it does, it gives people a false impression that that's what the price should be. Yes. You see? Yeah. So they're educating people wrongly, you know? Yes. Yeah. Their quality is supposed to so anyways, we, you know, we, we're, we're just trying to grow for the market that we can find, that we can sell direct to, and, and hoping that, you know, we can do our part to, to make this kind of food more available and, and to educate people. And, and the more people we have doing that, the, you know, maybe we can, we can start shifting. You know, the, in, in America, the the organic food sector has been growing steadily at about three percent a year there's there's no other sector in in the food and beverage realm that is that has grown so consistently and so much over like the last 20 years and and that is is forcing the the major manufacturers who who said you know who who wrote organic off and and wouldn't even give it a second thought. Um, they are being forced to reconsider, and and now the major, a number of the major, um, you know, food consolidators and 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 sellers are are buying organic lines, and you know they're they're starting to get into it. They're, I mean, even even Coca Cola and Pepsi are buying organic beverage you know companies as part of their their product line now yeah so you know it's it, it's 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 not it's it's a shift that is not going to take place immediately you know it's something that we have to work for and so i think our, our time's up for now and and when we come back i We'll, we'll go into some, some specific uh, ways of, of controlling different kinds of insects. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.